This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning we're being looking at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the great sermon of Jesus for his disciples. And first offer Jesus in his magnificent sermon is the Beatitudes. Simply put, it's a description of a follower of Jesus. It's the nine markers of a disciple of Christ. It's a package deal. You don't pick and choose them. It's what slowly takes you over as a follower of Jesus. These are the nine markers of the blessed one, the one whom the favor and the approval of God rests. This is what we are meant for. This is the normal Christian life. This is what the Holy Spirit's working towards in our life. This is where we will be most alive. Now, first off, right out of the gate in the Beatitudes is the poor in spirit. It's the doorway to the rest of the Beatitudes. It's the fundamental to the Christian life. Now, here's the problem. This is the greatest sermon from Jesus. The Beatitudes is the fundamental description of a Christian. Poverty of spirit is the doorway, the gatekeeper to the rest of the Beatitudes. And most of us in this room have absolutely no idea what it means. I'm not judging. I've been the chief of the ignorant with the poverty of spirit. I think I've taught the Beatitudes five times as a minister of the gospel. I am 40 years old, and I can say with just a little bit of confidence that I at least cognitively get what poverty of spirit is, and I'm ashamed by that reality. Having just returned from India, let me quote in India. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. This was said by Mahatma Gandhi, the most beloved political, spiritual figure India's ever had, and he's not a Christian. Now, this is not only true of India, it'd be true of Orlando. It's not only a problem that we have no idea what it means to be poor in spirit. We have not really cared over how many years we've been a follower of Christ to figure it out in true and meaningful ways. You see, the problem with being poor in spirit is that it's the opposite of being self-reliant. And if you're anything like me, it's not that you're just self-reliant. You love being self-reliant. It's your operating system. You don't know how to live any other way. And not only that, self-reliance has worked for us. We are our own best assets. When we typically throw ourselves at a problem, it's enough to solve it. It's it's our operating system for a reason. And finally, self-reliance and being poor in the spirit may look the same on the outside. In both operating systems, we find ourselves working hard, being responsible, being fully invested. Yet with self-reliance, we miss out on Jesus. It's only the poor in spirit that experience joy and embody both the favor and the kingdom of God. It's the only the poor in spirit that know real rest, real power, real joy in the most difficult tasks. If we're going to be on a trajectory this morning where we leave here a little bit more poor in the spirit, there's two things I want us to experience this morning. The revulsion of being poor in spirit and the radiance of being poor in spirit. The revulsion of being the poor in spirit and the radiance of being poor in spirit. So our revulsion to being poor in spirit begins with the process of defining it. First, being poor in spirit is owning your dependence on God, which is tough since we dislike having to depend on anyone, don't we? Secondly, Being poor in spirit is owning your spiritual bankruptcy, which is also difficult since we take credit for most of what God has done in our lives. And functionally, we think we're being something to the table of our spirituality. Finally, being poor in spirit is owning your neediness. 
which is tough since we avoid seeing, experiencing, or needing this at all costs as middle-class Americans. We hate to look at ourselves realistically because we build so much of our self-worth and identity out of what we do and how we perceive ourselves to be. You see, when you're poor in the spirit, you're not shocked when you're not enough for any given situation because you realize you're limited, you're human, you're a mess, and primarily you're not Jesus. When you're poor in spirit, you're not shocked by the turbulent and often sinful condition of your heart. Even though you have a new heart and the Holy Spirit's transforming you, you're just well aware of the deceitfulness that lies within and the sin that rebels against your God and King. And finally, when you're poor in spirit, you're not shocked when you're inadequate to handle the toxic nature of your sin and heart because you realize it's the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of gospel alone that brings any real change. Look, Jesus clearly stated that the poor in spirit are blessed in this passage, not the middle class or wealthy in spirit. You see, the poor in spirit see that, first, all their success and resources are from God. Secondly, there's nothing they earn from God. They have absolutely no leverage to barter on God. Third, they bring absolutely nothing to the table of God as if they had anything to offer in the first place. And finally, they need all the help from God in the world to finish any task before them. Now, the middle class and wealthy spirit operate as if, first, some, if not most, of their success and resources is from their hard work and responsibility. The middle class and spirit, there's something to be earned from God, meaning their good efforts, service, morality should be of some perk favoritism, maybe just a little bit of leverage before God. Third, the middle class or wealthy of spirit think they bring something to the table, something, by the way, of service, effort to be admired, validated, not needing the saving work of Christ or the power of Holy Spirit. And finally, the middle class and spirit think they need not all, but some help from God to finish the job, as if they can get most of the job done and they need God sometimes to finish that last little leg. Why? Because for them, the fundamental operating system is I can do it. Now, as I vigorously launched into the sermon, what started to happen inside of you? On one level, it feels absolutely absurd, doesn't it? Downright crazy. It's like a little child wanting to eat broccoli in your home. There's a voice inside of you saying, no, 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 you really can't do it. Don't pay attention to that brown guy up there. Something inside of you is already suspicious, already revolting. There's a revulsion inside of all of us to being poor in spirit because we love being self-reliant. Do you know what self-reliance feels like or looks like? I want to share with you the comments from the church planners we work with in India as they describe self-reliance in their life. The day seemed just to run away. Time, the word becomes stale. I seem to go through the motions. Prayer becomes a struggle. It's something harder to do each and every day. No matter how well I start the day, I tend to end the day poorly and at home, and my wife and children get my worst. My impulse becomes to do first and pray later. I feel more anxious. My day seems to get busier. If I don't pray first at home, it does not happen the rest of the day. If I start to get more and more tired as the days pass along, I start working more and I value my time with God less. My extended time with God seems to vanish away. I stop praying with people and I start to get more controlling and angry. Now, honestly, these could be my words. And I dare say, as I've been pastoring many of you, these could be your words as well. Self-reliance is the enemy of being poor in spirit. 
You already know what it means to have a revulsion for being poor in spirit. You already know what it means to love an operating system that is opposed to the foundational marker of being a follower of Christ. Here's the good news. Your problem can't get any worse. If we want to experience more rest, more love, more hope, more grace, more joy, more power, more Holy Spirit, then we must be willing to wage war in our hearts against the operating system that's systematically cutting Christ out of our lives. So, sorry to be so heavy this morning. Let me give you a couple questions to begin to think about. How does your self-reliance steal from you knowing the love and provision of Jesus? How does your self-reliance prevent you from knowing the love and care of your friends here, right here at New City? How does your self-reliance harm those you care about? And I got two sub-questions for you on this. What is it that you're not giving them because you're not resting in Christ? And what is it that you are giving them because you are not resting in Christ? And here's the real fundamental question you have to be willing to ask yourself. Are you willing to beg the Holy Spirit to change you, not to help you, but to change you? Now, it's a scary thing to pray, and I want to explain why it's a scary thing to pray. I've been working on this sermon for about two or three weeks. I've been reading this text. I've been looking at commentaries. I've found some really dead old guys who've written prolifically on this, and I've been filling my heart with their words and their sayings. I printed out stuff for my trip to India. I was well on my way to preach a fantastic sermon. And then on the flight between Delhi and Mumbai, I had this little spiritual moment where I cried because I was experiencing the love of God. I'm like, man, I'm such a godly man. This is great. And then, and then I'm realizing self-reliance and being poor in spirit against each other cognitively. And so then I was foolish enough to go, oh, Father, you love me so much. Would you teach me what it means to be self-reliant? Ted and I were joking on Thursday, and you'll know why. That was a very foolish thing for me to pray. He's like, yeah, I wouldn't really pray that one. And here's why. Uh, I wake up Wednesday morning, and for the first time in four, five, six years of taking trips to India, I have the worst stomach problem you can ever imagine. I am stuck to the toilet. I have to go back repeatedly over and over and over. I'm thinking, you know, I'm eating a lot of spicy food. I'm going to be okay. It's just going to get something out of my system. By this evening, it's going to be awesome because, yeah, I'm doing these Indian trips. My stomach's gold. I'm in a nice hotel. I'm being really careful. I'm going to eat. It's no big deal. It doesn't go away. And so I suddenly realize I, I, Wednesday and Thursday is game time. We are running this little conference, this little network. I can't miss any session, and I can't get away from my toilet. And there I am, and I get to apply what I've been working on for the last two weeks. So I'm laying on my bed, fully dressed, thinking, oh, Lord Jesus, how am I going to do this? Will you help me, give me strength to participate fully in everything I need to do and not miss a moment of it? And I can't begin to describe you how cool the last four or five days were. I don't really want to repeat it, but it was amazing. I did not miss a single session. I did not eat anything for three straight days. All I drank was water, and it went straight through me. I did not miss a single session. Every time I needed the bathroom, God worked it out, so I didn't miss my guys one bit. I had energy and strength. To carry through, I didn't need caffeine in the afternoons. I was fully there and fully present. Um, I had to take an international flight Thursday night. 
I was really worried about the hour-long ride to the taxi. Didn't have to use the bathroom then. Uh, I got to International Airport, and I was staying at one of the nice clubs because I'm flying enough where I got miles. I got these little perks. And I went in there, and the bathroom terrified me. And I begged God to help me get to the airplane. Who begs God to use the bathroom on an airplane? <laughs> My entire flight, there's 200 of us wanting to use six to five bathrooms. And every time I used the bathroom, it was always available to me. And then God woke me up when I was most beleaguered and tired and gave me energy to write the sermon I'm preaching right now. I learned something. I can't solve my own problems. But if I, in humility, beg Jesus to do what only he can do, he loves to do it for his little brothers and sisters. We have a revulsion to what it means to be poor in spirit. And if we're going to experience the beauty of being poor in spirit... It begins with us begging the Holy Spirit to change us. We already know what it means to have a revulsion to being poor in spirit. So what does it mean to have the radiance of being, of being poor in spirit? The radiance of being poor in spirit. The beauty of being poor in spirit is we get to experience all that comes from the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The problem with self-reliance is we're so full of ourselves, there's little room to take in what Jesus has to offer us in this kingdom. And as we begin to push back on our self-reliance and the Holy Spirit empowers us to greater poverty of spirit, what is it that we get to latch on to? Simply put, when you're poor in spirit, you see how rich you are in the kingdom. Rich in God's love, rich in God's grace, rich in his peace, fundamentally rich in him. So what's already yours in the kingdom of heaven? What is it the Holy Spirit begins to help you to latch on? First of all, you're already in God's kingdom. Paul had said this in his letter to the Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is the beauty of the gospel. As we're enemies to God, as we've already sung, deep in darkness, blind in that darkness, God from creation past reached in his hands in that darkness and yanked us out and planted us in the kingdom of his son and his beloved son in the kingdom of his light. We're in his kingdom because God has a hold of us. Secondly, you're dressed in the royal robes of Jesus. The prophet Isaiah said this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. It's not enough that Jesus would take us out of darkness and put us in light. What he does is he takes our filthy rags and he rips them off and he puts on his robes, his royal robes of righteousness, and he places them on us. What the Holy Spirit helps us to latch on to is we have all the royalty and the dignity and the status and the favor of Lord Jesus himself, and we're addressed in his royal robes. Thirdly, you're a co-heir with Christ. Paul, to a letter in Galatia, said this, And because you are sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's not enough that God would take us out of darkness and put us in light. It's not enough that he'd take away our filthy righteousness and give us his royal righteousness of Jesus. He makes us a son, a daughter, and an heir with Christ. Meaning all that's Christ is yours. One day you will reign and rule with him. The world will be yours as it is for him. 
all that's yours. But God goes on further. You're already seated in the heavenly thrones. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and have been raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this defies categories for me. My systematic theology does not help me with this. But do you see what the passage says? I know you're right here with me right now. But if you're in Christ, you're already seated on a heavenly throne with Jesus. Now, your experience and my experience is the same. We don't walk around thinking we're in the beloved kingdom of Jesus, wrapped in his robes of righteousness, a co-heir with Jesus who's destined to rule the world, already sitting on a heavenly throne where there's angelic beings around us crying, holy, holy, holy. But when we're poor in spirit, not full of ourselves, and we're begging the Holy Spirit to help us to see what we have in Christ, these are the realities the Holy Spirit can't help us to see and taste and experience and joy and live out of in meaningful ways. See, the radiance of being poor in spirit is you get to see the power of the gospel. When we sink down into our poverty, God promises to shoot us up in his gracious wealth. When we see we have nothing in ourselves, God gives us everything we need. When we see how unworthy we are of his love, we will see how worthy Jesus makes us of his love in the gospel. When we see how inadequate we are to handle the problems and sins that plague us, we will see how adequate Jesus is not just to handle, but conquer anything that assails us. When we see how powerless we are to change our situations, we will see how powerful the Holy Spirit is to change any situation. The best way I know to illustrate this is through my daughter, Lily. I absolutely adore my daughter. She's five turning six, and I couldn't ask for a better little munchkin to love on. Now, Lily can be pretty independent and stubborn. I don't know if you've met her, but she gets that very naturally. She's the spitting image of my sister, and she gets her stubbornness and independence very naturally from both of us. But there's one area she's fully dependent and quick to be needy. It's escalators. Escalators are my daughter's nemesis. I don't know what escalators do to her, but she goes from stubborn and independent to be needy in, in minutes. So, you know, every two weeks you're at the mall, you go to the bookstore, you go to the Mac store, she wants to go to Build-A-Bear, it's the same old conversation every time. And at some point we have to navigate the floors, and she knows an escalator's coming, and when she sees one coming, she immediately starts asking if I'll pick her up. Daddy, are you going to pick me up? Daddy, there's an escalator. Are you going to pick me up? Are you going to pick me up? She's just pestering me the entire walk up there. And then as she gets closer... I mean, about five yards out, she will stop. She doesn't risk it. She just stops, and she sticks her arms up, and she won't move until I pick her up. Very resourceful little girl. And then the whole ride up, she's clinging to me for dear life. She's just not letting me hold her. Her legs are wrapped around me. Her arms are clinging to me. Her neck is stuck on the crook of my neck, and she's holding on for dear life, and she's the whole time saying, Daddy, don't let me go. Daddy, don't let me go. Don't let me go. And she, she waits to like clear the escalator before she even thinks about unhinging herself from me. Now, all of this is so much fun for a father who absolutely loves his little girl. Now, what about you? 
When you see your challenges coming, who are you asking for help? And how much are you pestering him in advance? When you're facing that challenge face-to-face, are you stopping to put your hands up in the air to your Father in heaven, not willing to move an inch until he picks you up? And what are you doing in the midst of that challenge? Are you clinging to him for dear life on the Father who absolutely adores you? This is the only way to live. This is poverty in the spirit. You know, this reminds me of Jesus in John chapter 5. Let me tell you about Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever his Father does, the Son does likewise. Again, in John chapter 5, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear and I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then John 8. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you know that I am he, and I can do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. Typically, when a grown man talks that way, we send him to see a psychiatrist. We raise our sons to be independent, and we raise our men to not need anyone. And Jesus sounds like an absolute idiot but he is poor in spirit. He knows what it means to cling to his father in heaven. And there's never been a more glorious and beautiful and strong man. Here's our dilemma. Self-reliance and poverty of spirit require just as much effort. See, when we're being self-reliant, we dig deep within. We keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And we, we curse ourselves. And we judge ourselves. And we have contempt for ourselves until we can muster enough energy to solve whatever dilemma is in front of us. Poverty of spirit uses just as much energy, but the object of your hope is totally different. Instead of digging deep within, hoping to find something, you have your hands up to your Father in heaven, and you're asking your older brother Jesus to save you. And you pester, and you dig, and you go to him until he delivers. This past week, what did you feed off of? There's multiple places you could go to cling to the gospel. You can come to a worship service to go feed on Jesus. You can go to God's word. You can pray. You can go to other people in your gospel community, and they can point you to Jesus. But one of the things we had available to us all week is the Bible. And one of the things we do is a congregation city Bible reading. And I could not think of a better five days to feed on God's word. As you think about the challenges you experience as a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a sister, a brother, as a mother, a father, all those things, as an employee, as an employer, you had tasks that were beyond you. And what did you have to feed on? If you don't mind, I want to cover in two minutes what we could have feasted on this week. On Monday, there was Romans chapter 3, and in verses 24 and 25, we see that we've been justified by Jesus and his grace to us as a gift, and that we have redemption in Christ Jesus, meaning he bought us. We were sold to sin and death and slavery to sin and death, and he bought us, and he took us, and he was a propitiation by his blood, meaning he died for us. He took wrath for us so that he could purchase us and hold us near and dear. Now, I don't know about you, 
but walking around on Monday knowing that you've been bought with a price and that you're his possession and you're valuable to him and he's holding you dear would be a great thing to feast on as you do your chores that day. On Tuesday, Romans 4, we learn that we've been delivered up from our trespasses and raised for our justification, meaning that Jesus has made us beautiful, breathtaking for the Father. And when you think about a mother or a father looking upon their child and they just can't get enough of that child, that is the aroma and the pleasure we have before our Father in heaven. And I don't know about you, but on Tuesday, that would be something magnificent to feast on that I am ravishing to my Father in heaven because Jesus died for me. On Wednesday, all of Romans 5 is a gold mine. But what caught me on Romans 5 is 1 through 5, that we've been justified by faith, that we have peace with God, that we are standing in the grace of God, and that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. Oh my gosh, we're a cup which God is constantly pouring his love into. What a beautiful gold mine to rest in. On Thursday, Romans 6, we see that we are dead to sin and alive to God, that the sin has no more dominion over us, that we are under grace, that we've been set free from sin, that we are slaves to God, that sin is not our master, but Jesus is. That no matter how much bondage I feel like I am into sin, sin has been destroyed, and Jesus is the only one that holds me and commands me and that controls me. Friday was my favorite. It was a description of who I am. Everything I want to do, I can't do. And everything I don't want to do, I do do. And then at the very end, Paul says, Who's, who can save me? What a wretched man I am. Who can save me? And what does Paul say? Jesus can. And we can walk around on Friday saying, my God has saved me. The difference between getting by and living in the poor of the Spirit is when we're poor in the Spirit, we have everything we need to be propelled into the chores our God has given us. My wife's been getting on to me this all this week. So I just, well, the last couple of weeks, so I want to come clean. I have been doing city Bible reading out of duty. It has been a chore. I've been in a dry place, and it has just been abysmal. And so instead of living out of God's grace and feeding on him and then investing in my leader, I've just been gutting it out. And I praise God for the last five days of my life, or actually seven days of my life, because I couldn't do anything on my own. And I had to turn to his word, and I had to feast on it, and it lifted me up. So I feel like a failure as a pastor that have not led you out of God's word. But I rejoice in God's salvation in my life. He is helping me to feast on the magnificence of his promises. Poverty of spirit is recognizing you can't even make the word of God come alive. And you can't gut it out. But if you in your weakness and your misery just turn to him, look at what you get to feast on. Look at what can propel you through the day, no matter how difficult your chores and your tasks are. Look at what heights you get to enjoy. I don't know about you, but I want to see that I'm a cup that God can't help but fill up with his love. I want to see and experience that I'm a present to him that he bought with great price. 
I want to see that he's my master and my king and I'm dead to sin and he's so alive to me. And I want to see that in my wretchedness, there is one who will always save me and his name is Jesus. There's no other way to live. Poverty of spirit is how we connect to the magnificence of the gospel and know the radiance of our savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are a self-reliant people and we are so thankful that you are a sufficient savior and that right now you are saving us from ourselves. The Holy Spirit, you are working on offense to make us more important spirits. And Father, the thing that gives us most peace this morning is that what you started, you will finish And that our self-reliance cannot get in the way of your saving work in our lives. And because you have made it a mission to make us poor in spirit, one day we will be in poor in spirit, just like our elder brother and our King Jesus. And for that, we thank you. So Holy Spirit, we beg you, help us to walk in step with the Spirit. Help us to hate our self-reliance. Help us to change. Change us. Help us is not enough. War against our self-reliance that we may cling to you alone and be propelled into life by the power of your gospel, that we may give you glory, that we might actually live out the gospel, and that our neighbors in Orlando might worship you because they see the power of the gospel and something totally alien to them in front of them. And we pray this in your blessed name, Jesus.